friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're tuned to the MC Lars podcast. Today is Monday, July 8th. It is episode 45 with Word Burglar. This weekend I played Anime Midwest with Mega Ran and Whitey Cracker. It was tight. And uh, my next show is the New Jersey Gamer Con, July 27th in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Then I've got a bunch of fall dates. Today's episode is brought to you by the following Patreon supporters. Some of my new ones, Jeff, Nathan, and random geek name Brent. And some of my old ones, Jaron, Jeremy, and Nick. Thank you very much for your love and support. If you sign up, you get my entire back catalog, discography, and you get two songs a month. I've got two songs this month. One is about Mad Magazine and the legacy of it and how I'm going to miss it. And the second one is about Johnny Appleseed. So don't miss that. It's super exciting. Um, what else? Well, let's get right into it. Word Burglar. I heard Word Burglar years ago, and back in the early days of Nerdcore, you know, there was two types of songs you'd hear. You'd hear stuff that was either well-produced and funny and like energetic, and you could hear the vocals clearly, and then stuff that was very amateur and like not bad, but had work to go. And when I heard Word Burglar, I was like, oh, this guy is almost not even Nerdcore because it's like... Punchlines over cool breakbeats, super well produced, super fun, old school flavor. And uh, I instantly started enjoying Word Burglar. So we met a few times over the years. We became friends. And uh, he, we, he was in town for a show we both did in Philadelphia. So he came by my spot and we talked about what it's like being an independent Canadian artist growing up, his business plan, some of the uh, the time he beat Drake for an audition in a commercial it was pretty awesome. So this is my interview with Word Burglar. We're going to end with the remix of Reading Rainbow with former Fat Boys. Check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special guest all the way from Canada. We've got Word Burglar. What's up, man? Oh, what's up? MC Lars, this is great. I just got a great workout coming up the stairs. You know, I'm used to coming up all these stairs from my paper rooting days when I uh, would deliver in all these old apartment buildings. And I, I would love going up the stairs and you could kind of smell what, you, what each floor was cooking. Oh, you're making a broccoli casserole. Uh, they got some muffins on, uh, you know, the seventh floor. That sounds good. That floor, they have a bunch of birds. <laughs> So this climbing up to the fifth floor was like old hat to you. Absolutely, yeah, I, I I love it. I notice a lot of similarities to growing up in Halifax, and like a lot of the architecture is probably built around the same time, right? Like you know, way over hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. So you used to deliver papers. I was a paper boy, yeah, for seven years. Yeah, all up through. Through junior high and high school and even up to when I was legal drinking age. And uh, yeah, I remember, you know, having to leave a bar because I had to get up early the next morning. To, I got to deliver papers tomorrow. I'd be like, what are you, you're a paper boy? <laughs> so that's how you could afford a lot of your old records and comic books and all that? Yeah, I spent all that money. I would I would earn on the route. I'd spend on comic books and CDs and records, baseball hats, video games. I remember saving up to get like Street Fighter 2 or... You know, Chrono Trigger and all these awesome Super Nintendo games that uh, that would go on to be to become you know games of of uh, of esteem and legend. <laughs> Wait, so in seventh grade though, you probably weren't driving, right? No, I wasn't driving. No, you were on a bike. 
No, no, I was walking. It was oh, all walking. Oh, That's I what see, I'm saying. Yeah, so it was all all walking downtown, up and down buildings. Like apartment buildings are great for anyone who's had a paper route because yeah. you know you can like. I mean, it's kind of an extinct job now, but uh, the because uh, apartment buildings you can just nail so many different deliveries in one in one go. Right? right. It's like, well, I got 30 papers, but they're all at this building, so I can just take the elevator to like the 10th floor and then run down the stairs and just slide papers under everybody's doors. It's, Great. Like, what was the paper? Uh, the Mail Star. Wow. Yeah, the Chronicle Herald and Mail Star. And uh, I do a comic book now called The Last Paper Route with my buddies Alex and Dave uh. Howlett, who does uh, comic art. And uh, and that's it's inspired by all that all that time. So you know, I used to yeah. deliver newspapers to make money to buy comics and music. Now I make music and comics about delivering papers. So yeah, it's the circle <laughs> continues. It's a very twentieth century <laughs> kind of. Uh, nostalgic career right yeah I mean, who does that job now for it's digital the kids yeah it's you know what it's gone mostly to a lot of older people a lot of retirees that do cars and then yeah a lot of digital right like print media as much as i love paper and i know you love all your books and everything yeah like it's yeah i mean print newspapers are, are on the decline people are anticipating in the next five to ten years there won't be but it was, you know, we remember, I mean, you remember the time before the internet, people right. needed their paper. Like I was like, you know, 12 or 13. And like, if my, if I delivered a paper five minutes late, people were upset. Wow. Like, they needed that news. They wanted to know whatever was happening in the city. You know, you couldn't just check your pants computer and be right. like, Hey, okay, what's the weather going to be? You know, who won the baseball game? Right. <laughs> you, right. And so it was a, um, you were like bringing the light to them. Yeah. What time do you have to wake up? It. Uh, Saturday mornings, I was up at about 6 a.m., but uh, during the week, it was after school. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so my best pal, Arlex, the robot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have any dogs that were scary on the paper route? Yeah. Yeah, there was one or two. I mean, the, the scariest people were the customers, and they'd try and screw you over, and you'd get like... You know, I had to collect money. So you're this kid knocking on the doors every two weeks saying, I can oh. I have my like 545 for the... For the paper the last two weeks, I didn't order paper, I don't know, but I've been delivering it all week, and then, like, people would try and screw you over. Uh, the craziest thing that ever happened, I, I rap about it in, in one of my older songs, uh, The Root, and this is a totally true story. Like, one summer, this apartment building had about eight apartments in it, was just getting stinkier and stinkier, and, and like, every day, there's, like, this smell going on in the building. I didn't know what it was. Right. It got to the point where I was, like, plugging my nose and holding my breath and running through the building, trying not to inhale because it was so bad. And then just at its peak, and there was a heat wave in the summer, and this sounds like something out of, like, The Burbs, which is an amazing movie. Yeah. Uh, and I show up on this one day, just as it had gotten so bad, and they're wheeling out a dead body. Oh, God. Yeah, and I saw the, the toe tag on the foot, and someone had just died in their apartment, and no one discovered it for weeks, and they were just in their apartment. Not to get, get all But grisly. they smelt it. The neighbors probably smelt it. Yeah, I think if you live there, it was, they must have just been like, what is going on? That's like, crazy. Did a, a raccoon die in like the air conditioning vent or something? Right. But yeah, so it was yeah, a, little, a little more grisly. Than so that. they didn't have to pay their paper costs. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, they got off the hook. That's one way to get out of your bill. <laughs> yeah, so that's crazy that they would have a kid be collecting the money it's insane yeah. when looking back like i yeah. learned a lot of discipline from that job which i carry with me today and just like you know yet you, you know i had like my boss who's our district manager took it so seriously and yeah you know we were always trying to like get starts and a start meant you were starting a new customer on on the paper route and 
Um, but no, I learned a lot and I learned a lot about just dealing with people and just yeah. being comfortable with all kinds of different people, all ages, you know, from all walks of life, just being a kid delivering their newspapers and just cause you, a lot of them, a lot of people just wanted to talk. So I would wind up having crazy oh. conversations with these people and just learning so much and like, wow, you know, so I got a lot of fodder and, and again, that's what our, the comic book is about. So the last paper, which is just a self-published book that, uh, I do and, uh, and it's just all these, yeah, these tales of the, the paper route in the 90s. True stories. Then. True story. Inspired. I mean, we yeah. take creative liberty to make it like a more entertaining comic book. But yeah. everything is rooted in a seed of reality. Well, that's where good art comes from. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I, um, I saw a documentary yesterday, and I wonder if you've heard of it. It's called The Great Hip Hop Hoax. No. Okay. So is this woman, uh, Jeannie Finlay, she, it's the story of these two kids from Scotland who in 2004 fronted like they're american kids and they did like a fake accent and they got signed to sony as a hip-hop group as like a hip-hop duo like they're supposed to be like the next beastie boys or something and eventually it kind of came out that they were putting on this act but it's interesting because it's this perspective of them in scotland feeling like removed from hip-hop trying to emulate this american culture but watching it you can like tell like how how they dress how they talk like you can tell that they're not truly american and that kind of like you know it's kind of derailed their career but it's interesting documentary because it's about how you rep your authenticity you have to feel like american is how you have to rap and your style as someone part of the commonwealth i was wondering like <laughs> i thought it'd be an interesting talking point because it's like how did you see american culture and like how has your perspective on it changed as a rapper hmm well i mean obviously rap started in america and i loved it uh, nova scotia it's funny nova scotia it's sort of a fluke of history that it was not part of the states because apparently a hundred years ago plus Everyone wanted, like, they were trying to get Nova Scotia to join the States. Now, I'm not, like, a huge historiological scholar, but growing up in a very, you know, a, a, a province that's filled with a lot of history, it's, yeah. it's always fascinated me. And so there's always been a strong American connection. We get all a lot of American TV channels. Boston is very close with us. There's this big event called the Halifax Explosion where half the city uh, got destroyed in this in the harbor. By these, these ships collided and they blew up with this gunpowder. It's insane. Wow. And Boston was the first city to come to Halifax's rescue. So there's been a long history of American and Nova Scotian uh, connection. Anyways, growing up, I never really thought there was much difference really until I got older. Like, you know, I always, I played with GI Joes a lot and they were like right. a real American hero. So I was like, well, we're North America. Right. So, right. you know, I love baseball. I was obsessed. I've been obsessed with baseball my whole life, rap and GI Joe, which are all very American things. Yeah. Love app apple pie too. You know, not, not to get so cliched. Um, comic books too, I guess. Comic books. Yeah. yeah. From, yeah. American comic books. hundred yeah. percent. So basically, yeah, we were, I guess, finding the identity at least when it came to me creating my own music, to me, the best rap was always authentic. So you rap about what you know, whether you're on the West Coast, East Coast, whatever. Down South, it's like the best rap comes through when people are being true to who they are and what they know, obviously, right? Sure. And their stories and everything. So I always knew, you know, I always felt, you know, not authentic when it, you know, if I ever thought of writing a rhyme, I was like, that's not really me. Like, what am I about? Well, I'm a paper boy. You know, I'm from Canada. I like, I like comic books. I like to eat sandwiches. Like, yeah. so I was always writing raps about the stuff that I loved and that was true to me and true to my experience. And, you know, meanwhile, inundating myself with 
any rap I could get my ears on. Um, so I, I guess in terms of like, I've always just felt completely comfortable just rapping about who I am and I'm, you know, born and raised in Canada and, um, and, and yeah, there's definitely differences, but there's so many differences. I see it as differences from like province to province and mm. state to state, right? Mm. If you go, you know, Tennessee or you go, you know, California, New York, whatever, there's going to be differences everywhere, obviously. So, uh, I, I guess I don't know. I mean, I feel we're very, we're so similar in a lot of ways Yeah, and it's not really, I mean, as opposed to going to like Japan or going to the UK, um, but I do feel a connection when we go to the UK because there is right. that Commonwealth in a weird thing, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, we got the same lady on our money. <laughs> <laughs> in the same language. Yeah. But yeah. it's such a, Glasgow to LA is very different from Toronto to New York in sure. terms of like the cultural differences. And it, it, to me, the documentary was a little bit sad because the group was called Syllable and Brains and that they Never were- heard of them. They were trying to, yeah, they, that- to feel like they had to get signed in like 2004, they had to emulate this culture. And, and I recommend the documentary because it be, like what you said, their shortcoming was that slowly people were like, oh, this is not real. If they'd just been authentic, you know, and, and tried to like rep that Northern Scotland, it would have been more interesting, but maybe doubtful that Sony would assign them. Yeah. Well, know? I mean, again, it is respecting, especially with hip hop. I mean, a huge part of it is respecting the culture and respecting rap and where it came from and studying it. It's like if you're, you know, if you're a classical, you know, a pianist, you study classical piano and everything before you can like do, get up to do your contemporary stuff or whatever. So rap, I mean, I don't remember a time when I didn't listen to rap. Right. And I just, you know, it's respecting the culture and then like adding your own, you know, what are you going to add to it? How are you going to keep building this while staying true to the roots? And, you know, obviously that gets sort of bastardized and, and you see when different cultures and especially with hip hop, everyone is so possessive of what their idea of this is hip hop, like right. this is hip hop. And it's like, well, if that's hip hop to you, that's great. But then sometimes it's a lot of the negative elements that get you know, blown up and it's just, that's what people see. And they're like, oh, I think I need to act like I'm a criminal all the time. Or I think right. I have to act like a certain way or talk about certain subject matter, even though whatever, they're from Glasgow. So if that was maybe their downfall, yeah. as opposed to just rapping about hummus or whatever. Which right, is, right, Again, right. not to stereotype, you know. <laughs> I know many Scottish people who hate hummus. So. <laughs> yeah. No, you mean haggis. 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 Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> haggis and hummus. <laughs> I just started my coffee. Sorry, everyone. I'm no, just, I feel you. I'm waking I, up. <laughs> I think, and that, like, now in 2019, it's like, what makes you weird and different is what makes you stand out. Because everyone can do the autotune, like, like, um, Xanax raps, right? Right. And not, no disrespect, <laughs> no disrespect to that stuff, but like the the opiate rap, right? Like it's like it's it's rebellious and it's what it is, but it it feels like an Instagram filter on everything. And I and I, this often comes up this topic. Like I was talking to Jesse dangerously about this. It's like oh, yeah, we don't want to be the old guys in our thirties who are like, oh, rap sucks now because it doesn't. No, but. The good rappers, I think, are the ones who try to find the originality, even maybe under that aesthetic, you know? Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's great rap being made every day. I mean, amongst like all of us and our friends and peers. And then, you know, even like the younger generation, there's great stuff. I mean, I've been touring even just, I've been on tour since August. I know you're on tour all the time and playing with younger acts and meeting you know, meeting rappers who are like in their like late teens or early twenties and they are like completely against that whole like 
we refer to it as like the Drake phenomenon. Right. Because that's a huge thing, obviously, you know, Drake from Toronto. So that's like so much of that Drake sound. But Toronto was, is basically the hotbed for rap in, in Canada's history. When you mm. look, if you, if you ever heard of Maestro Fresh Wes, I don't know. Mm-mm. He was like the first huge rap superstar to come out of Canada. Mm. And he was from Toronto. Mm. He's this area of Scarborough. And Scarborough became this hotbed for just amazing hip hop throughout the years. So since then, there's been like Chuck Lair and Cardinal Official. And, Swollen uh, members, are they Toronto? Uh, they're West Coast, actually. Okay. Yeah, okay. so they're Vancouver. Um, yeah. But they're dope too and like Rascals. So Vancouver had its own scene. Toronto, yeah. I mean, to me, the Toronto rappers were always like, there's a lot of New York influence, but they made it their own. And then again, I grew up in Halifax and I was kind of back and forth between Halifax and Toronto. Yeah. All my family was from Toronto and I moved there uh, shortly after, you know, after I finished school. And uh, I was always like the Toronto rap scene always amazed me. But then with this Drake thing coming in and again, not hating on Drake, he's done very well for himself. Yeah. But it certainly influenced a whole new era of rap, which was not so much lyric based, and to me, the lyrics are such a huge, you know, it's 50% of your hip hop. It's like yeah. you need the lyricism and you need to be writing and you need to be pushing yourself to express your ideas better. And when it is that mumbly Drake thing, I mean, I could go on and on about it, but I think there's I, yeah. good young kids making dope rap today for sure. And that other, the Drake stuff is more sort of in the pop category. That's sort of. Because it's familiar and it's melodic and it's emotional. And yeah, I hadn't thought of that. The SoundCloud stuff was kind of like in a footnote to to his kind of sound, the singing rapping. You're right. That's a good point. And that, and that was what, like 2008, 2009, he started getting big, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you, I know when he started getting big because this is, I uh, I met Drake oh. before he was huge. He used to be on this uh, TV show, really popular in Canada called Degrassi, Degrassi High. Uh, it's a... High school teen drama. They've, there's been he was like in a wheelchair or something. Yeah, well, he didn't start the series in a wheelchair, yeah. but there was a big episode where he got shot and had to be in a wheelchair. Oh, but wow. uh, anyways, he was on the show. It was huge, and it was like Degrassi, the next generation. So it's like Star Trek, except uh, right. Canadian high school. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been multiple eras of it. That's funny. Anyways, this show was huge, and yeah. so he basically had this enormous fan base from this TV show, and he was parlaying that into his music career. And I got called to go on an audition in Toronto for Pizza Pops, which I don't know if you have Pizza Pops here. They're basically like these little, like kind of like uh, kind of like a calzone, a microwave oh, right, like sure. pizza Panzerati thing. You you know you heat up. And yeah, <laughs> you eat a ton of them when you're like 14 and whatever. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I got called in an audition for this TV commercial where they were looking for like rappers to rap about Pizza Pops. Yeah. So I get called in, and there was a bunch of. Toronto rappers there. Danny O, who's like this other, uh, he's this Toronto rapper who's been around a long time. And who's there in the uh, in the audition waiting room? It's Aubrey, Drake. Mm. And this is the pre-Drake thing. Anyways, I get called in. Danny O gets called in. Uh, I assume Drake got called in. A bunch of these people get called in. And then uh, I wound up getting the part with Danny O. Oh, wow. So Danny O and I were in this national tv commercial rapping about pizza pops this was about 2006 2007 is it on youtube yeah there is a version on youtube That's great and uh and you know one of the actors has gone on to be in a bunch of hbo stuff anyways it's super funny to me because it's like yeah. i at the time i was like that ad paid like crazy dough like it helped me to go on tour and and uh finish burglaritis and do all this stuff and uh, it's funny looking back now that like that 
you know, I beat Drake for a Pizza Pops yeah. commercial. <laughs> That's but I take his career now. <laughs> Wonder why they didn't hire him. Didn't have the lyrical didn't skills, have- man. I don't know what to tell you. Like I was like, they had me rap. I was rapping my ass off in right. that room and, uh, and freestyling and just like uh, okay. keeping it going. And Daniel is a super skilled lyricist, and uh, you know Drake can Drake can obviously rap. Um, yeah, but uh, maybe or maybe he wanted too much. Who knows? Who knows what it could have been? Right? I always thought that started from the bottom. I was always like, wait, but didn't you have a TV show and a fan base? You mobilized. It felt, but I guess started from the bottom. In that he pivoted and started from a new scene. I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, a song that uh, comes under much scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, he used to work at Shoppers Drug Mart. I think that's the idea, which is like basically like a CVS or a Walgreens. Before he was on TV. Yeah, and then he yeah. sort of worked his way up. And obviously, he's got tons of talent. And uh, if he ever hears his podcast, Drake, you know, I got, got love for him. And, you, you know, hook, hook up Bergie, man. <laughs> so <laughs> Why you forgot about Berg, dude? Come on. <laughs> Would you, he's probably the biggest obviously one of the rappers in the world and definitely the biggest canadian rapper right oh yeah 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 i mean again and he's given love back to like but maestro fresh west is i'd equate maestro to like a rakim like his style his rap style it's like that late 80s like super lyrical like upbeat like the drum breaks are just like you know little sort of the rhythms are faster and just like yeah look up maestro fresh west dope and all your listeners if you're not familiar he's a crazy rapper huge influence on me as a kid for sure yeah were you um into the organized rhyme yeah sure yeah <laughs> i mean yeah that first album was hilarious yeah. yeah was that big when that came out yeah yeah it was at least like on the school grounds you know every kid <laughs> i knew had it and like because it was like a mix of i don't know if you've ever heard the full album but there's like comedy skits yeah. on it and like a bunch of different like they were doing a lot of stuff and then yeah, they kind of went nowhere, and then all of a sudden, this Tom Green guy popped up, and he he was he did pretty well. Was he doing the, the show before that, or was that before his whole cable access stuff? I believe that was before the oh. cable access show, because that would have been OR was probably like check the OR. You like it so far? That was probably I want to say ninety or ninety one. Oh, wow, way back. Yeah. So when did the Tom Green show really? I mean, he he blew up on cable at least with MTV. It blew up mid 90s late 90s i guess and then he had that cable access show in ottawa so i guess you had to live in ottawa to to catch that show right it would have been just a local thing but yeah he uh wow he had a crazy trajectory i know uh, yeah interesting yeah he's got a new album out actually with our friend uh peter project who uh i work with a lot coins and he's he produced some tracks for him on his new record that's cool yeah yeah it's pretty cool uh your listeners don't know there's this great album called Daft Science where Coins, aka Peter Project, who's a dope beat producer, he remixed all uh, he took all Beastie Boys acapellas and mixed it with Daft Punk music oh, cool. and created all these new songs. And it's yeah, it's called Daft Science. Super, super dope record. Great, you know, you can find it online. It's good stuff. That's a cool find. Yeah. That's a cool concept. Yeah. When Sean, when did people cause this is something I wanted to ask you. When did people start associating you with nerdcore? How do you feel about that? And like, I guess I'm trying to figure out. I first heard you probably 2006, 2005 when your earlier stuff came out. Yeah. So what What was, do you, like, how did that happen that you became part of that movement? And how do you feel about it? Uh, well, I tell you, I feel great. Yeah. Uh, easily. Um, I guess I found out about it 
through, it would have been Jesse Dangerously. Okay. And now I remember the MySpace era. I think I had first heard of you maybe on MySpace, maybe around 2005. I didn't even have a computer at the time. I was like going to like, you know, the library and using the computer at school and stuff to like get stuff up. But uh, yeah, I was, I was putting out rap around like 96, 97. I was making these little tapes and I was sampling, like I was sampling video games. Like I had this, I'd sent away for this, Final Fantasy three CD three disc CD collection because I got the video game and it uh-huh. had like this like order form where it's like you know buy this soundtrack I was like oh man then I could make beats from the seed because I'd have the actual music from That's the video cool. game because I hadn't figured out how to like record right off the the actual Super Nintendo then so and I had all that paper route money of course right right <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember getting that and I started making all these like Final Fantasy beats. And then I'd be rapping about video games and comic books and stuff. So yeah, and then I put out this tape with my crew at the time. We were just my buddies and we all freestyled together. We were called the Dregs of Society. And then I was working at a comic book shop and in high school and just people would come in and knew I was a rapper and it was great because it was like right downtown Halifax. So all the Halifax hip hop legends like Joe Run and Buck 65 and 6'2 and all these people, if anyone knows like Halifax hip hop, these were like the guys. And they would come into like, check out the store and buy comics and like they kind of knew me and like so i'd be rapping and like be like oh yeah i'm buying tapes off them and stuff because i was too young to get into their shows yeah blah 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 blah. so i'm making video game songs rapping about comic books in the comic shop doing all this stuff and then one day jesse's like hey you know there's all these other people doing this stuff now and it's called nerdcore and you should check it out so he gave me uh some mc front a lot music right i was like oh this is cool like i i really dug front a lot because i've always felt his style is so really unique and original but like totally grounded in like rap wordplay and everything and and i love the way he all his different inflections and his, the way he writes and everything much love and you know i've got a lot of love for you and like the whole scene so we'll get Same. there we'll Thank get you. to the Thanks, love Sean. we'll get to all the love <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so yeah. this, I guess, yeah, it was maybe around 2006, whenever that Nerdcore Rising stuff, it was before that album had come out, right. but Jesse had been working on this stuff, and Jesse was always way more in touch with sort of like that online world than I was, and because again, I'm like the dinosaur with print, I'm t- even to this day, <laughs> I'm like rather read a magazine than a blog, and right. um, and uh, so I heard about Front a lot, and then I guess a like I was like, oh, okay, and I didn't realize there was like that much of a scene going on, and then I got invited to go to Nerdapalooza, ah. which was in two thousand eight, and that was in Orlando, and Hex and Rob and all these people, and they brought me out, and that's when I met Megaran and Schaefer and like Zealous One, Dualcore, Whitey Cracker, MC Frontalot, uh, so many amazing people, uh, Z. Uh, like just all oh, these yeah. great people, and, you know, sadly you weren't there, but everyone was sort of like talking about you and like, and it was like th- this community just sort of blew me away right? that everyone was sort of doing. And there were definitely like these pockets and there's like scurvy Dan doing like pirate stuff. And, you know, <laughs> obviously Rand had like the Mega Man stuff going on and everyone, and there's just like this amazing, positive, dope community. And it was kind of like, oh, this is kind of what I've been doing. Right. You know, obviously, I'm like very steeped in sort of like underground hip hop DIY aesthetic, but I was just rapping about nerdy stuff. And, you know, because I remember Curtis Blow sampling Transformers. Like, I had the mm. record of like, I'm chilling, <laughs> and 
and like all the Wu Tang and everything. So there was always right. comic books and all this stuff floating around. And uh, I was joking with someone the other day. Uh, you know, I remember when like Ghostface Killer's Iron Man album came out. They're like, "Why is it called Iron Man?" I'm like, "Cause it's Tony Stark, man. It's Tony Stark." Yeah. And like today, everyone knows Iron Man's Tony Stark. Right. But right. I was. Uh, I knew it first <laughs> before the movies. <laughs> Yo, I knew what Iron Man was before the movie. Also, so did millions of other people <laughs> who read the comics. Well, and that's interesting because Nerdcore became more than just music as a community and the fans. And it was like, I remember when I first toured with Front A Lot, realizing, oh, these fans, they're small, but they buy merch and they're loyal. And it's like Violent J from uh, ICP said, one juggalo is worth more than a thousand mainstream fans. And I think that's similar because they're ride or die and they're so loyal. And shout out to, I know a lot of you are listening to us right now and we appreciate you, you know? Oh, for sure. And I just love being able to, like, finally find people who know if I'm making a reference to, like, Wood God from, like, 1970s Marvel Comics. Someone's going to come up to me and be like, yo, you just rapped about Wood God and the West Coast Avengers. Like, that stuff always was, like, I'd be dropping these lines, you know, in my high school cafeteria. And people were like, what's this guy talking about Serpent Society and whatever, right, right, you know? Right. And then, uh, like, I don't know what he's saying, but I guess it sounds cool. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then now it's like finding, you know, it's finding our people. So I, you know, I've, I've always loved all this stuff and just, yeah, it's, it's an incredible community. So shout out everybody listening. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And shout out you and Front and Megaran and Schaefer and, and Dual Court and just Whitey Cracker and Michael Kill. Everybody <laughs> just like doing all this amazing stuff and keeping this community together and being, you know, sort of being like Nerdcore North, I guess, or, you know, Nerd of the North. <laughs> I fe- I do feel a little bit away from all this stuff that's going on because yeah. in Canada, we, we have a great little scene in Canada. Um, and obviously, like, I do a lot of, like, the rap shows and I play all over the place, but the Nerdcore scene is not really as big. I mean, I'm sure it is, but it's right. not quite as mobilized in Canada as it is uh, in in the U.S., so it's it's amazing to see how everybody comes together. And I meet people. I mean, you know, your fans come to my shows, and they're like, "Well, I heard about you through MC Lars and this and that." I'm like, "Well, I'm so appreciative of that." And That's it's just, cool. It's dope, and it's it's great that as listeners, you can find all these great different albums, whether you want to listen to video games or comics or or just stuff about food or fun or, right. or literature, like that great new album you just did with Mega Rans. So Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, it's it's just dope. And the cream rises to the top. I know yeah. Nerdcore got, you know, got a lot of flack a while ago, like years ago. And, you know, I've always sort of been like, well, yeah, I mean, I was kind of doing my thing, and I'm glad that Nerdcore accepted me as, like, this was, like, great. Like, this is part of that. I mean, I always say, like, I'm a rapper first, but I'm – also a nerd so it's yeah like, and i take my rap very seriously right as do i take my nerdiness so <laughs> <laughs> you know anyone who's been a fan of nerd culture and music who's been doing it for a while there's this tendency to be like oh well before superheroes were cool we were writing for them and now they're so mainstream and i wonder if there's this fear sometimes that writing songs about niche superheroes and stuff feels kind of trendy or co-opted, even though we were doing all that stuff before that happened. I wonder if you ever worry about that. Yeah, I definitely think about that, you know, but I also, 
then sort of reaffirm myself that, hey, this is what I've always been doing. Right. <laughs> you know, I made a right. song about Fred Braca, who was like the Crimson Guard, who was, you know, that was the alias of the Crimson Guards in Cobra. They were all clones and they all had the same face. It was Fred Braca or Fred Broca, depending how you pronounce it. I mean, it, like, I just think of all this stuff. I'm like, and to me, that was like a dope song. Like, I just did a song about the Hujibs, who are these obscure Star Wars characters who have basically been completely written out of canon. But right. I had this like book and record as a kid, and it was like Star Wars, Planet of the Hujibs. And there's Chewbacca on the cover, and there's like these flying telepathic weird bunny guys. And then right. like, you know, this record apparently sold like millions of copies, and all these kids had the Hujibs. And then Never saw him in a movie. I remember right. when the prequels came out, I was like, oh, yo, maybe we'll get some hoojibs. Now we got Jar Jar instead. I'm like, what is this? Where are the hoojibs? Y'all right. forgot about the hoojibs. <laughs> so, and I would always joke with my pal Dave. I'd be like, man, one day I'm going to let the people know the hoojibs. So, yeah, it was just like the right time came up and I figured a way. You know how you get that, like, once something unlocks, and you're like, oh, I know how to approach this in a song. Right, right. So I did a song called Remember the Hoojibs. That's so great. So now maybe the four people who hear that song will wonder what I'm talking about, and then maybe Google the Hoojibs. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's that's a great take. It's like the maesters in Game of Thrones, right? Sure, yeah. We become these people who preserve and celebrate 80s, 90s pop culture because it meant, it meant yeah. a lot to us. And- yeah, and the thing I often think about, Sean, is like, okay, where where will it all be in 10 years? Will You know what I mean? And does that matter? Because hip-hop is about, I don't know, doing it because you have to and you want to. And, and yeah, how does this all, these are big questions, but how does this all connect with like the changing face of media where then if you are doing like niche culture stuff and a very small group of people love it, is that sustainable? Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I've, I never made rap thinking I was ever going to make any money. Like, I've just always loved doing okay. it. So I've never been driven by that pursuit. Obviously, the older we get, we're like, yeah, I got to pay my bills. Yeah, so, but I've always had a side gig. So I've had, I, I'll work a job and I've been doing rap full time since last August. But, you know, once this current wave kind of dies down, I know I'm going to have to get another side job again. Because rent is crazy. Who can pay, you know, life? And you want to eat well sometimes. <laughs> right, right. Read some comics. <laughs> you know, buy some records. Right. So I like to have a side job. So then it doesn't put the full, you know, it doesn't put so much pressure on my music for me to make something that is like, oh, I'll make this because I think it's going to sell a lot. Obviously, I want stuff to sell. And each album I've put out you know, knock on wood has been doing better than the last. And it's because of the support of great listeners. And I, yes, I would love to do this full time for the rest of my life. And it, it gets, I can see myself getting better the more I'm able to just, okay, I'm focusing on this hundred percent. So we know that in terms of sustainability, uh, in terms of like the niche concepts, I mean, when I started rapping, I was going to the video store and renting DVDs and videos and video games. Now I'm writing songs about remember when you used to rent videos <laughs> you right, know? Right. so maybe like 10 years from now i'll be like yo remember when switch was like dope and like everyone was obsessed with smash brothers <laughs> right <laughs> uh, right remember right. everyone had a kickstarter and did all this <laughs> yeah that was crazy 10 years ago we didn't even know there'd be like nose crystals that could like give everyone free music through their brains right, like, right. I, who knows <laughs> right so i guess i don't worry too much about the future because 
you know, like with my new album, Rhyme Your Business, not to sound like I'm like promoting with my new this and that, but Rhyme Your Business, that's the whole idea. It's just rap what you know. Yeah. So that's what I've always done and that's what I'm going to keep doing. So I'm not worried about falling into like, oh, I'm just making niche stuff because I'm just going to, you know, I'm hopefully always going to like and enjoy stuff and have per- perspectives on things yeah. that I can write about and create. And yeah, maybe 10 years ago, I might not be rapping as much about comic books or video games. You know, I'm rapping. Who knows what influences of the world are going to hit me and that I feel compelled to write about. So yeah. And that's, you know, I don't just write about comics and video games now, but uh, you know, that's, you know, it's always just experiences. So I think as long as we keep having experiences to inspire us we'll be able to keep creating music and then people can go back and be like oh yeah lars that was during his literary era right yes yes now he's more into um you know botany right. <laughs> that i like that sean that's a good perspective that you do it because it's something you have to do and you want to do and when you put the financial onus on like oh i hope i hit the right trending thing that can be dangerous and that can be disappointing and then it like we're talking about the um syllable and brains the scottish dudes you know if something feels like it's not authentic yeah and and i think yeah and so what's the, the solution is what keep putting stuff out keep like finding and supporting and investing in the community yeah and keep pushing yourself lyrically and that's why i like all of your music feels to me like it comes from a specific very nostalgic wonderful era in hip-hop like late 90s kind of that kind of vibe and i like that because every time i put on word burglar i know i'm gonna get i know what i'm gonna get and i know (laughs) it's gonna surprise me and on a technical level it's gonna be funny and clever but like well produced and i was i wanted to ask you like what is your writing process and like how do you pick the songs that you put on your records uh that's I'm always writing notes. Yeah. I'll write on napkins, write in my phone. I've got like a whole, even today on the subway over here, I was like writing down, like things pop into my head. So I'm always writing down little notes here and there. They could be a rhyme, could be a song concept, could just be just whatever, just some random word. And then what I love to do is, is sit down and go through my notes and just, and just write and just see what I can come up with, piece stuff together. I'll think of something and you know, so many songs take years to write. Like Rental Patient, which I mentioned, that started during when I was working on the album Replicable Skills, which came out in like 2015. Right. But then Rental Patient didn't come out until the new album, Rhyme Your Business, because right, right. I didn't quite find that entry point. Like the idea was there. It was like, oh, video stores, remember renting, blah, 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 blah. But then it all came together when it was like, oh, you needed patience. Like that was sort of the connector that patience. Was sort of, that's yeah, good. That's a good time. Like, you yeah. needed patience. You were the rental patient, right? right. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. if you went there and they didn't have Jurassic Park, you had to rent something else and you had to take a chance on a different movie. And like, I don't know, this one's got a lot of fingerprints on it. So I guess a lot of people rented it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so writing, yeah. And then I'll write long form. I do a lot of editing. I'll go through stuff over and over again. Sometimes I'll just write an amazing or at least to me, an amazing rhyme that just doesn't go anywhere. And then once I get a whole bunch of those, I just put them all in one song. So some songs are just all, you know, I do have the songs. I definitely have like my uh, different subcategories of like word burglar songs, where it's like one is just all a bunch of crazy rhymes. Uh One will like stick to a theme. You know, one will be like a nostalgic thing, whatever. Anyways, so. Yeah, I like yeah. one of my favorite songs of yours is kind of different than your others is Cream of Wheat. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like a, yeah, it's, 
can you talk about that song a bit? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, I started writing that, you know, shortly after I had I moved away from home and it was sort of my first time moving out of, you know, the city and not being close to like all my close friends and my family that I grew up with. And it was a freezing, dark, gloomy day in Toronto. And I just opened my cupboard and I had cream of wheat. And I loved cream of wheat as a kid. My mom would make me cream of wheat. Like in Canada, especially, it was like when it gets cold and snowy and you get your snow pants on. And, you know, it was like that warmth of cream of wheat. And it just sort of like inspired me. I was mm. like, yeah, cream of wheat. I love cream of wheat. And yeah. I made it and it was like put a little brown sugar on it. And it was just like my whole day got better. I felt right. warm. It was like, you know, my apartment sucked. It was like freezing, you know, yeah. wearing snow pants inside. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it just kind of warmed me up. And then I just, it brought me back to this place of youth and just retrospective. And that was sort of one of those first big tracks, you know, especially when you're like really young, like early 20s. And like you start to realize, oh, I remember when I was a kid. Because I don't think when you're like 17, I could be wrong, but when you're like 16 or 17, you're not really looking back at like, oh, remember when we were kids? But maybe in your early 20s, that's when, at least for me, I started to think, Oh yeah, I remember this. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, maybe that is that never going to happen again. That was amazing. Why does that thing that I used to love 15 years ago never going to happen now because I'm older? So I'm always trying to embrace. I think that's why I think nostalgia is a positive thing. Mm. And that song is a lot about nostalgia and reflection. Um, and the weird thing was, I recorded that song the day I broke up with uh, my ex girlfriend, and we had been together for five years, and they were actually the reason. Not the reason, but the big reason that I had moved out, uh, moved away from Halifax. And then that relationship sort of fell apart. But I'd already sort of written the song, and I think the signs were maybe there in my mind. Mm. And then I remember I had the studio session booked, and it had been booked in advance, so I had to go in and record the song. So the recording that was actually came out on the album, that was recorded like that day after basically this huge relationship, the biggest relationship of my life to that point had just ended and so i even listening to that song it's it brings me to that place i'm like whoa i remember exactly that place i was and that song has resonated with a lot of people and maybe it's because of that state i was in that day when i recorded it i mean since then i realized that breakup was the best thing that could have ever happened to me <laughs> my life has gotten amazing and i right my wife now is absolutely phenomenal and shout out mealy sashimi um, but yeah, but back then, so that whole song, I think it, it, it was kind of like a magical thing. And it was one of the first rap songs I played for my mom where she was like, I really like this song. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, you. thanks. It's a, you bring up that song. I'm like, yeah, I've got, uh, I guess I got a lot to say about that one. I think um, with me, when I do a song that's personal or like introspective like that and I have a real emotion to it, that those are the gems that like, you know, the Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Like when you do comedy and pop culture and nostalgia stuff, it's a really good humor is a really good way to drop truths. Like this is I remember this or I miss my friend who who passed away or I think this is a messed up thing about capitalism. Like it's a great it's the comics like Calvin and Hobbes. You can use cartoons and funny references as a way to tell truths. And it's always cool to drop one of those on a record. But I think what makes the nerdcore stuff different than a lot of like the earlier backpacker stuff is some of the, quote, I'm doing air quotes, emo rap was was 
not so fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. And so my favorite, yeah, my favorite songs are like the ones that stand out on records is, oh, that's different. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I wonder, something I think about a lot when I talk to other right rappers, especially nerdcore rappers, is where do, when we are doing cut and paste references, where does our story come from when it's like this postmodern collage, you know? Do you think about that? Or do you feel like how you reconstruct the pieces automatically tells your story? Oh, like how the how the stuff we love affects us? Or? Yeah, and then how us talking about it is the difference between we're just helping this brand create more brand awareness versus sure. in, we're creating our own stories. That's definitely something that I am conscious of. It's yeah. like, I'm giving all this free publicity to, you know, X brand. Right. I mean, again, I... I I think it ties into the human condition. Definitely like being, you know, children of the 80s and 90s. Like we were exposed to so many different brands. Like it was basically the gloves were off once the 80s hit and they were able to start marketing and doing these cartoon things. Like we all know Transformers or Power Rangers, whatever, where they were able to say, here's a TV show. Here's a toy line. Here's ads for the toys featuring stuff from the TV show. Here's the movie. Here's all this stuff you love. You need it all. Like collect them all. (laughs) Because it was the, the, the boomers had these kids and the, the Reagan era capitalism, there was, it was a wealthy era. Yeah, Yeah. sure. And I mean, like maybe some of our parents had like Barbies or GI Joes or something, you know, in the sixties, seventies, fifties, whatever. But yeah, the 80s and 90s are really unique in that way where like we were inundated with all this stuff and it was really open season. Obviously now I think toy sales aren't what they used to be with kids. You know, kids are more would rather have like an iPad or something, you know. I'm generalizing. I think good toys are always go somewhere. But anyways, I think our story comes out in like, well, we were products of this age and it did affect us in this way, but it is it is also important to just think about, yeah, the human condition. And that's why... I do like to write stuff about like my personal things, like whether it is a paper root or cream of weed and, and every album I make, I feel I l- approach it like a mixtape. I've always loved making mixtapes, like actual cassettes back in the day and like, right. CD mixtapes and right. even like a dope playlist, like any good mixtape has a great variety. So you've got your quote unquote emo song, you've got your fun party track, you've got like your weird track, you know, the storyteller. So every album I make, it's not really complete to me unless I've sort of ticked off all these different boxes where I'm like, is there enough balance here? Is there enough variety between like, let's get some, you know, let's touch, hit some nerves, let's do some stuff. And, you know, I I don't get really too political because I like to, you know, I do keep stuff very, I guess, fun and and light and introspective, you know, but I will drop like a couple lines here and there every album. Yeah. Here's how I feel about this. And like, just, I do take a stance on certain things here and there. Um, which I think is another great way, like art. I know we're kind of all over the place right yeah. now, but this is great. Mm-hmm. And and our art can, you know, your art, as long as it's coming from you, I think you're going to be okay. And like, if you can catch yourself, like I did Welcome to Cobra Island, which is obviously inspired by G.I. Joe, which, you know, there's a lot of issues there that people could get into about mm. like, oh, is this just free brand advertising or is this just celebrating war or whatever? And like, to me, it's like, no, like this is like incredible storytelling that was created. And I just combined all my experiences reading G.I. Joe comics, watching G.I. Joe cartoons, re- collecting G.I. Joe toys, like being inundated by this stuff as a kid, but also it gave me this sense of creativity and adventure. And I truly believe all the people who worked on that brand in the 80s 
were brilliant. And the storytelling and all this stuff, and I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way about brands they love, Dragon Ball or Pokemon, or Power Rangers, whatever it may yeah. be. Like when you find like the really creative people like ourselves who may have been working on the brand 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever, I feel like there's great stuff. And so I wanted to, with Welcome to Cobra Island, that was a celebration of me saying, hey, this stuff is dope as hell. I've always thought it was good. Right. Also, my wife was like, she's like, can you just stop talking to me about G.I. Joe? Just like put it in a song or something. <laughs> and uh, that was only supposed to be one song. And then it turned into a whole album. Right. Because it just sort of, I realized, I figured out a way that I thought kind of worked. So I'm really proud of that piece. And uh, and yes, it's not sponsored by any, endorsed by any toy brand or company or anything. And it's just sort of my for all intents and purposes, fan fiction-y album tribute to uh, this cool Cobra-inspired uh, uh, fantasy. <laughs> well, you, it got a great reaction, didn't it? It's like... Yeah, 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 it did, yeah. I mean, I put it out for free download, so anyone can, to this day, you can go, if you haven't heard Welcome to Cobra Island, just go to Bandcamp, type in zero dollars, and you can have the whole album for yourself. Wow. And yeah, we did a great video, Rap Viper. It's on YouTube uh, with my buddies at 3 a.m., and... I think it looks better than any of the G.I. Joe movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me started about G.I. Joe because I could go on. But uh, G.I. Joe is this weird brand, I think, that has just sort of been stuck now. Transformers, Ninja Turtles, everything else kind of evolved. And that G.I. Joe, it was around for 14 years. Mm. So for like most of my like toy playing youth, G.I. Joe was around. And there were so many toys out that once I got old enough, I'd go to these garage sales and see all these G.I. Joe figures that I never had as a kid. And I'm like, right. I always wanted these like 20 other guys that I would see on the back of the package, but right, I only had right. like two of them. Right. So then I'd be like buying garbage bags up at yard sales of <laughs> G.I. Joe's. <laughs> so like my collection got bigger as I got older. Again, much to the chagrin of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> that G.I. Joe, honestly, Sean, is something I, other than listening to your songs about it, I don't know much about it. Yeah. So so break it down for me. What's the story? What's like the, it's not just army guys, right? It's essentially, think of them as sort of like a super, There, there's a lot of elements of like Justice League in it. They're okay. like a highly trained special mission task force. Right. And so yes, based definitely in military. Um, so G.I. Joe is basically... You know, it's an American team, but it's kind of like international. They have Canadians on the team. There's an Australian guy. There's a bunch of different people. Okay. So, is there a Canadian? Yeah, there's a Canadian backstop. Ah, yeah, cool. which is a reference to hockey. And you know, That's I'll be great. honest, he's never really been my favorite Joe. I'm like, come on, give me a break. <laughs> but backstop is the only official Canadian Joe. Okay. Um, and they fight against Cobra, and Cobra is a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the oh, world, like ISIS. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> see, there. You, that's where we start to get to Question, problematic. Right? Now, kids yeah. don't want to, or parents don't want to be buying terrorist action figures for their kids. Rightly so. You know, I, I get it, but. That's a whole other conversation. Where's Cobra from? Well, uh, Cobra Commander is American, okay. and but they operate off an island somewhere off the Mexican Gulf. And, and is that Cobra Island? That's Cobra Island, and they okay. operate under diplomatic immunity, so they're able to like build this crazy bunkers, and they've got hospital and laboratories and all this stuff, and they basically create this huge organization of the wildest mercenaries ever. So well, who's granted them the diplomatic immunity? <laughs> I think there's like some sort of legal technicality. Um, this is like, no, this was all in the comic books. So there's like, Larry Hama wrote it. Okay. And Lor Larry Hama is such an incredible 
writer, and he basically, he's kind of like the Stan Lee of 80s G.I. Joe, okay? Stan, he's the, the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby of 80s G.I. Joe because he helped create all these characters. Now, of course, there's Kirk Zigian, there's a million other, Ron Rudat, so many other incredible people on the G.I. Joe brand. But Larry gave all these characters storylines and lives, and you would read the comics, and since G.I. Joe started, like, essentially in the 80s, a lot of these characters... Uh, had history in Vietnam War. So Snake wow. Eyes was actually actually a Nam vet, and he, him and Stalker, they had been in Nam together, and so there were bonds like predating the formation of Joe, and that sort of wound up building, and, you know, uh, Larry himself is a veteran, so he was writing all this stuff from oh, like really? a real perspective. And Was it, he in Vietnam, or? He was, yeah. yeah. So it was never, he never dumbed it down. Like, clearly he was aiming these comics at, you know, kids, to grownups, but it would always felt like a very real adult storyline you were reading. And so there was like the gravity and the, the, the consequences and everything was, was always there intertwined with crazy robot troops and ninjas and just all this fantastic stuff. So and crazy weapons, right? crazy weapons, crazy backpacks, crazy vehicles, yeah. like helicopter, you name it, you know, space right. stuff like GI Joe was just, it was everything you could want. And then the cartoon series took a more sort of, it was a lot more creatively liberal and they introduced more like mutants and snake people and stuff like that. But it was also really cool. Mm. So you'd read the comics and then watch the cartoon and there was a bit of a disconnect. And anyways, with when I did Welcome to Cobra Island, I tried to bridge all the stuff I loved from the comics into the stuff I loved from the cartoon. And Larry, again, I've been talking about G.I. Joe so much. And some of your listeners are like, <laughs> what is Word Burglar's deal? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a really fun pocket of uh basically escapist fantasy with a foundation in military but there's way much more onto that and uh as like you know i have family in the military and and you know i don't have any family who were you know snake inspired terrorists that i know about but you know there was a as a kid definitely like you know people were like oh yeah you know like i saw the the military aspects and you grow up and you're like okay well you know that's you know it was more to me than that, right? It was right. G.I. Joe was good and they were forced for good and they were a team helping each other out and everyone had their own specialties and everyone would build off each other's specialties to do this stuff, like a Justice League thing. So as right. a child, it's it's a really, I thought it was a great positive escapist fantasy with a whole bunch of crazy stuff in it. And that's enough G.I. Joe. And, <laughs> and, it's, and it's grounded in history, which is interesting. Yeah, the yeah, Vietnam yeah. The connection's interesting. And um, yeah. the, the idea of like with Rambo and a lot of those 80s movies, what do we do with the legacy of the pro- problematic tale of the Cold War? And what does that, how does that define our culture? And all great popular culture, I think, like Shakespeare noted this, like he would do Julius Caesar and then do it for Elizabethan audiences and try to find connections between the queen and king and how that connected to Roman history, right? Like mm-hmm. all great popular culture recycles truths about our experience. And so by rapping about it, you're therefore trying to inject like these layers of meta truths. And I did a few years ago, I did a, actually last year I did a Roger Rabbit album for the 30th anniversary. Yeah. And I was trying to connect, you know, there's the books that is based on the comics, the movies, the shorts, the sequels that they wrote scripts for that they didn't make. And so for me, it was this question of like, what is canon in this universe? What is not? And having the joy of being able to decide, well, this is canon because I put it on this album. Do you, is it like that with G.I. Joe with what's canon and what's not or? Sure. Well, and certainly every fan is going to have their stuff that they love and they hate about it. Right. Uh, And for myself, I mean, I definitely 
took sort of my interpretations of like, okay, this would make sense. Like, uh, if Cobra La, who are these the snake based organization, like actual snake people who are discovered in like basically like a Himalayan, uh, so it's like Shangri La, totally, yeah. So they're in the cartoon movie, which some people love, some people hate. I think it's amazing because of right. the cartoon. I was the perfect age to see it, and it just sort of snapped my brain. I'm like, wait, everything I know is a lie. Cobra Commander is actually this mutant snake guy. <laughs> Anyways, so there's some people that hate that stuff, but I was trying to bridge that, and I do a song about it on the album where it's like, well, if they were real and I worked for Cobra and I was just like some regular guy from like wherever, Chicago or something, I'm like, like I don't want to go fight these these snake people who are mutating everybody. This is crazy. I don't want to go to Cobra Law. So that was sort of my right. take on it. And then I, of course, created this character called Rap Viper, who was the rapper who motivated the Cobra troops because right. the Vipers all have, there's like Astro Vipers and Toxo Vipers and Ninja Vipers, all, all these different Viper core who have their own specialty, but there was never a rap viper. That's so that's when I was like, yo, someone, what are they listening to when they're driving around their his tanks? You know, they, they need some tunes. That was your hook on that yeah. song, right? Rap viper. Yeah, rap yeah. viper. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's the jam. That's the video. Yeah. What is the, this would be the last thing we could say for GI Joe, but what is the, what is, <laughs> hey, co- we can do the whole podcast about it. <laughs> no, this is, this is tight. I've never spoken with anyone who's such an expert on this. Oh, I just enjoy it. I just love it. You know, what is Cobra's ultimate goal? So like ISIS's goal would be to, create the caliphate right like the the islamic state right or like in infinite jest david foster wallace's book about in the future canada and america join and the canadians want to separate from the u.s what are these guys ultimate goals and are there women too or is it just dudes oh yeah there's (laughs) i you know what there's a lot i again i think some of the best female characters that i would read about were from gi joe as a kid like the baroness lady j scarlet Jinx, Cover Girls, Arana. There's a Pythona. There's a lot of great female characters. Uh, but yeah, Cobra's goal is just total global domination. Oh, okay. And Cobra Commander's just basically this maniacal sociopath who uh, just wants to rule everything. And So he's uh, kind of a fascist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could say that. And, he, and he's got this venomous ideology that's just sort of based. He loves chaos, mm. but he loves controlling the chaos. And he just gets his kicks from doing stuff like, you know, drawing his face in the moon or, you know. <laughs> so he's a megalomaniacal man who's risen to power who believes in his ego. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to get too political. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I won't, I won't go there, you know. <laughs> Is he into genocide or is he gonna let everyone be okay or what's his ultimate plan i guess you know i like to hope that he wasn't like a total like genocidal maniac like he was more just like he just wants to like he wants everyone to kiss his feet and do what he says and yeah if he totally rules the world uh i don't know would he ever be happy would any of these right but there was no like yeah, there was nothing tied into like religion or anything. It was just more like I, he just wanted to take over the globe and do whatever he wanted. Right. And I guess he just really hated the globe. <laughs> and back in the 80s, that seemed impossible, right? It yeah. seemed kind of like someone couldn't manipulate information to become a global dictator. And that's what's kind of nostalgic. Like going back, it's like, oh, well, that could never happen. Right. right. Yeah. And so, yeah, enjoying that stuff is you when you watch it now, if you've never seen it before, it's kind of hard to like, this is ludicrous. Right. <laughs> I'm watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It's, you know, I like doing Sean. I like writing as a villain, but giving that villain a redemptive quality. 
And I think some of Shakespeare's best characters are his villains, like Iago in Othello, you know, or like that song I did with Cool Keith, giving him notes on how to rap as Judge Doom on the Roger Rabbit track. Like that's always interesting to me. And that must have been interesting doing writing from a villain's perspective, right? Trying to find humanity in that character. Absolutely. And their reasoning and their logic for it. And that that is super fun. And I love doing that because, yeah, again, like, yeah, Shakespeare is a great example. You've got all these characters, Iago or some people who are flawed and you know, they believe they're right and like what, and you can't correct them. But yeah, redeeming them. It's, uh, it's so fun. That's why what we do is so fun. Like I I love it and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to do it and tour around and, and share this stuff with people and, uh, and hopefully just, you know, keep getting better at it. Right. And connecting with people who, uh, who are also intrigued by these stories. Yeah. Because it's the mythology of our generation, really. Mm -hmm. Um, you're a big Marvel fan. Sure, yeah. So th- you made me think of something. You talked about, um, what's it, the Cobra Commander? Is that the king? Is that the, That's the leader of the Cobra? Yeah, yeah. So you're saying how if he were to take over the world, would he be happy? And it makes me think about Silver Surfer's origin story, right? Where this is, I might be making a big jump here, but do you know a lot about his origin story? Well, in terms of like how he was created or his origin his in the planet. comics? His planet. Uh, uh, yeah, was it not Shalabal? Uh, I'm blanking on it, but yeah, I mean, he was, he basically was responsible for a whole bunch of people dying, right? And then he had to like surf the skyways uh, to the spaceways and redeem himself. And he was the messenger of, uh, of Galactus or, and he protected, he swore allegiance to Galactus to, pro- to save his planet from dying, I think it's wow i'm like i'm totally silver surfer is one that i'm uh i'm a little spotty on clearly it's almost like a uh, a, a messiah for that planet he was right? totally a messiah i mean yeah. that's sort of the an idea i know like because that character is sort of contested on who fully created it was it jack kirby or stan lee uh-huh. and i think both of them brought a lot to that character but yeah definitely when stan lee was writing surfer he did write him with this messiah complex for sure and he had to save the earth and convince you know mm. he wanted to he worked with Galactus, the consumer of planets, to, you know, to t- help try and find planets that he could eat to save, like, the people he cared about. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that on Silver Surfer's planet, people would kill themselves because life was so perfect, right? And, like, nothing, it could, ne- it, everything was so boring because it was, like, a perfect planet. Is that true? Or is that, like, made up? I'm not as much of a Silver Surfer expert to confirm or deny that, but it sounds yeah. uh, sounds plausible, for sure. There's been a lot of different stories of Silver Surfer in the last, like, 50 years. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know that one, yeah. But my thought, the reason, my connection is the Cobra Commander could take over the Earth, then he tries to take over his planet, but things are so perfect that it ends up in him annihilating himself. You know what I mean? Like... I don't know. I just like to think of like how these stories connect and how that relates to our own journeys. And going back to what you were saying, like having to always prove yourself, if everything were perfect and we all were like millionaires and like everything we did charted, we might lose our hunger and our edge. And that might not be good. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm kind of glad I never made it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in some ways, you know, uh, right. I mean, made it. What's that? I mean, that's a, what's the definition of making it? But I mean, I'm glad I never really, I never wanted to sign a label. I knew a lot of people who did sign right. label deals. I've seen a lot of people sign deals and then make the worst album I've ever heard them do. Won't name names, but yeah, definitely artists that I looked up to in the underground in Canada, and then they'd sign on or they'd do something. I was like, whoa why does your stuff suck now? Right. And because they were being forced to do something that wasn't purely them. I mean, do you think if you, if you were on a label, would they let you do a whole album dedicated to Roger Rabbit? <laughs> like, like when you're nuts. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think I've always prided and loved that I have been able to do whatever the heck I want. Exactly. And, and I think that's like a lesson that our fans and other people in the scene can look up to, People like you doing a G.I. Joe record or doing a record about whatever you want. And it's inspiring. And I think that's what I love about hip hop is that we're able to tell whatever stories we want, however we want, with our friends and collaborate. And that like, there's no one right way to do things. And like as MC Chris said on a song I did with him, he said, hip hop is nonstop mistakes. Sometimes the things we don't think are going to be good or the things we think we flub end up being our best things have you sure. ever had anything like that like a song you're like ah oh, that's just that's just an album cut and then everyone's like yo word burglar you got to play blah blah yeah absolutely i mean cream of wheat's kind of one of those too okay. and that was uh you know it wasn't a flub i guess but it was one that i just sort of i was like well i'm just gonna do this to me like and i would think like uh yeah like i mean i made the first song i made like you know when i when i broke off from my crew, the dregs of society. And we didn't break off. They were just not really interested in rapping. And I was like, I'm just going to start writing solo tracks. And I, uh, and I did this, these little demo songs and I did a song that was just called the word burglar. And it was just me like goofing around and like right. come up with this crazy chorus, you know, I burgle words. And it was just like this, like really over the top kind of thing. And then I was just like, this would be for me and like five of my friends who think it's funny. Right. Right. And then that wound up getting, that was on a demo I put sent to Han Solo Records, and they put it on Basements of Batman Two, which was this rap compilation. And then that it became like the, a featured song on that compilation, got a lot of college radio play. And next thing I knew, everybody kind of knew that song. But it was more like you know, it was kind of like a fluke. That it was a bit of a fluke. Yeah, is yeah. Word Burglar a parody of Turd Burglar? Or is that not true? No, I don't okay. even know. Like, yeah, I mean that first song I rhymed turd i rhyme like gurgling turds burgling words because that's sort of like obviously where people's minds are gonna go but you, you know, never heard that phrase turd burglar as like an insult uh yeah sure yeah sure yeah but no it was not a play on that <laughs> to me it was just like honestly i was just like rhyming like it came out like from just like i was like i'm hurdling verbs you know i'm burgling words call me the word burglar you know it that's just kind of like and that was like honestly like I was doing a lot of super scientifical kind of, you know, like that's like that late 90s, like, like yeah. super scientifical, you know, I'm doing it like the the rhyme style and definitely like that underground, you know, like, yeah, listening to a lot of like. Stealing all the vocab words you can. Yeah. So you can drop them. Right. Exactly. That's tight, yeah. That's yeah. You know, like just all the words and that's just kind of, I remember walking down the street like rhyming because I'd write rhymes in my head. I wouldn't right. even write them down. Then I'd just like say them over and over. Wow. And then I'd like get, when I'd find a place to write them down, I'd write them down, but I'd perfect my rhymes by just keeping them going in my head. And I would freestyle listening to beats when I'd just be walking everywhere, like, like on my paper route and stuff, for example. Right. That's what I started doing. I'd always have mixtapes and listening to beats all the time. Anyways, yeah, I, that's how I was just sort of like, 
it came out of like verb hurdling, word burgling. That's and then I just was like, oh, you know, it's word burglar, the original, you know, verb hurdler, you know. And then um, your character with the mask, that was when that your artist came up with that or was that your concept? Um, that was like for my first shows. Uh, again, like I was super influenced by Wu-Tang Clan okay. and uh, obviously old school rap. And like, I remember like those early, like getting the Source magazine and you would see Wu-Tang and they'd all just be wearing like ninja outfits and like right. all black masks. And the you were like, what is going on? And you, eight dudes jumping on stage, all dressed like crazy microphone ninjas, you right. know? <laughs> and like, so to me, there was like a certain theatrical element that I wanted to bring. So when I booked a live show, I was like, what am I going to do? Uh. And so I... Went to this Halloween store and then like got this crappy burglar costume. I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I just came out for the first song in this burglar costume? Yeah. And so I did that and like the place went nuts. Like if you run right. through a bar filled with drunk people, like on a Friday night, you know, as this crazy beats playing, wearing this burglar costume, like right. people lost <laughs> their minds. So I got up and I did that in the costume and then you know, took off the costume after the first song and rapped. It was like, this is more than just like the gimmick. Like that, to me, that was my main concern and why right. I stopped doing that maybe a year later was because I don't want people to just associate the costume with, you know, I want you to be like, yo, okay, yeah, the costume's super fun. It's a good theatrical element, but it adds to it, you know, but it's like the songs are there. Like the right, content right. is there. And, uh, but yeah, those early shows, I, I really, it was super fun just dressing up in this costume and running on stage and people were like, what? And then people remember, oh, who's the guy in the burglar costume? Oh, that was Word Burglar. Right, and right. And then, you know, I sold a lot of CDs, man, at that show. <laughs> 2012, I saw Riff Raff at South by Southwest and he had like this big icy the diamonds that looked like a 7-Eleven icy. And I was like, that's ridiculous. But I remembered it. And I right. was like, I always rocked the ace hat and I was like, all right, well, what am I going to do to keep a consistency? So I started wearing all black and then wearing that Zelda thing on a chain. I saw some rapper, like I saw some, some on Tumblr, someone with that. And I was like, okay, well then I made a song about that game. Cause I love that game. Great but, game. but I was like, okay, but it's gotta be subtle. I used to dress up in costumes, like for my different characters and like have a different costume for every I song. I remember the Poe one, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. was, yeah. Dressing yeah, yeah. up as Poe. I did a show dressed up as him, but yeah, you kind of just want to be yourself, right, on stage. Sometimes the gimmick can override the quality. But then some yeah. people do have a costume and it's different. I don't know. Yeah, and to be perfectly honest with you, I've been like, I'm totally open to the idea of coming out in costume again. It may happen just because it is fun. And I'm like confident in the content of the music and my back catalog now of like, you know, all these songs right. that I've done. I'm like, yeah, right. yeah, I'm just dressed. This is fun to dress up and give people that hype, especially yeah. as just a rapper. I'm not coming out with a guitar. I'm not coming, you know, we're not being on stage. You know, I if it's like a big event coming out in some crazy costume, it's like that's going to get people hype. Right, and, right. Uh, so, yeah, maybe, you know, it's I'll never say never, you know, it may <laughs> They may have to don the costume again. Or ski mask. <laughs> or ski mask, yeah. Oh, shoot. <laughs> um, what is the origin of Backburner? And what's your connection to that crew? Okay, so Jesse Dangerously and I played on a baseball team together. And I think we, we were in scouts together as well, Cub Scouts. And we kind of lived on different part, different ends of Halifax in different uh, areas. And 
I was kind of doing my own thing and people were always like, oh, you should link up with Jesse. I'm like, oh yeah, Jesse, I know that guy. And then it really wasn't until I, I was working at Strange Adventures, this comic shop in Halifax in high school. And again, Jesse came through and Je and I think that's when our friendship sort of reconnected. And he would like bring in his Walkman. I remember he'd like give me his headphones and I'd listen to demos he was making. It was like, oh, dope. And like the Halifax hip hop scene, especially around that, let, let's say late 90s, early 2000s, there was like a lot of awesome stuff happening. You know, it was like the early days of Anticon was just about to happen. Buck 65 and 62 and the Sebutones obviously like linked up with the Anticon guys. I remember them bringing out like Sage Francis before Sage Francis had fully... And soul too. And soul, yeah, there, right? there was yeah. like a whole bunch. There was a great, like underground hip hop was alive and well in Halifax. And Joe Run, who's really like the godfather of Halifax hip hop in my mind, uh, it, he was this beat producer and he was doing all this stuff. Anyways, Jesse and I were kind of like doing and working hard and like I mean, rapping like a long time at that point. You know, we were still high school kids or whatever, and like we were fans of the Halifax scene, whereas a lot of other people who I think were making rap at that time were trying to emulate like Snoop Dogg or Puff Daddy or something they, you know, or Biggie. And it's like, no, we're kind of like looking up to these like local heroes. So I was like amazed at Joe Run and Buck 65 and these people doing just really, really dope stuff back then. So I think that inspired the creativity. Anyways, I was kind of doing my own thing, rolling with like my crew, the dregs and just having fun and messing around and freestyling at parties. And Jesse wound up linking up with a few of these cats and they started building Backburner. And then it came time for me to record uh, my solo demo. And I was like, you know what? I've never actually tried to record professionally. I've been recording on this crappy mic and a Radio Shack mixer and all this crap. Right, right. I just like collected right. over the years in my room and my friends and I had been just making our, our previous tapes on. So Jesse's like, I know this guy with the studio. You should come by. You can record with him. Da, da, da. So I had linked up with Beat Mason at that point, who's just an incredible beat producer. And uh, and I had some beats that I had made. And so with these, you know, I had a couple songs. I'm like, I could rap over this, like, you know, this dope Beat Mason beat or like this track I made. And Jesse introduced me to this guy, Fresh Kills. Uh. And Fresh Kills is like, oh, I got some beats you could rap on. So I'm like, uh. oh, crazy. So next thing you know, I'm like, yo, Kills beats and Beat Mason's beats are way better than my beats. <laughs> so throw away my beats. And I started recording. And I recorded this demo over the Beat Mason Kills beats in Kills Studio. And that was, Backburner had already been kind of started. So there was like a bunch of other people already involved there. Jesse and Kills and Jay Busy and Thesis and... Fess and Process, Dexter Doolittle. So there's this whole crew of those people. Anyways, that this, this was all in Halifax. I moved to Toronto shortly after, and those, you know, and Kills was actually originally from Toronto. Mm. So then I moved to Toronto and was sort of getting involved in the Toronto scene and going to these freestyle nights, and, and I met up with more or less, and we became buddies there because he was DJing at this show uh, called In Divine Style. And so I met Les, and we connected, and... We just started like freestyling together and hanging out and writing raps. Kills moved back to Toronto. I was like, let's go hang out with Kills. Then Jesse came through and then the whole backburner thing just started coming. And I think we were all kind of like I, the outcasts maybe of like all these other scenes. So we wound up linking with these great, you know, the tool shed guys who were from London and I'm going to be forgetting people when I start naming everybody. But yeah, like Thesis and Jesse and I, and we were all sort of like, yeah, we kind of found each other because we were all doing sort of the different things within our respective scenes. I think we kind of right. all stood out in a way. 
but we were kind of like nerdcore. Like we were all, we all kind of just found each other. Or like Anticon. Like Anticon, yeah. yeah. And then I got invited to tour with, it was, yeah, Toolshed and Thesis and Jesse. And this was, uh, yeah, 2005, I guess. Mm. And so Backburner, I guess, originally started, I don't know when they were, maybe 2001, 2002. And then I guess I officially became part of the crew around 2004, 2005. And then we've all since become like, you know, now there's like Swamp Thing and more or less. And, you know, Ghetto Socks and I used to freestyle together this radio show in Halifax. So I knew Socks from there. And then Socks, obviously, you know, came in and... uh yeah, you know, the Swamp Thing, more or less. I'm forgetting so many people, but, you know, all the producers and DJs and Beat Mason. And, um, yeah, now we're just basically this Canadian collective and we're all still just hustling and putting out stuff. And there's been various, you know, various groups throughout, but, like, really, like, everyone that I was kind of coming up with, like Jesse and Les and Swamp Thing and Ghetto Socks, Beat Mason, like, everybody's still doing stuff now. Mm-hmm. And... It's this strong, yeah, we're just like this Canadian underground rap crew, and we now kind of spawn across Canada and into Japan. Oh, Ginsu, I forgot Ginsu. See, that's so hard because the crew is crazy. But at any given time, I'd say there's probably about 10 of us that are really grinding hard, like, you know, Les and Jesse and the Swamp Thing crew, Tim and Chokulis and Civilian. Like, we've all got a lot of albums and been prolific and... And obviously when we come down, get to hang out with all you guys at South by and do stuff like that. So, but yeah, Backburner, Yeah. We're just kind of the underground rap outcasts, uh, from Canada. <laughs> so it's, is there like a centralized website or Twitter? You just kind of, it's just kind of like you. Give yeah. It- there's a Twitter Backburner crew, which is just sort of like, uh, aggregates. I think everybody's different things, uh-huh. um, to find all, most of the releases have come out through hand solo records. So, uh, which is this dope Canadian underground rap label that's been around for over two decades. And wow. they put out a lot of classic rap uh, from like Buck 65 and Mocha Only and a bunch of different artists and, uh, and myself and Jesse and Les and everybody. Um, so a lot of the Backburner stuff, I mean, if you type in Backburner Crew, you can probably kind of find us. I know on Bandcamp, all the stuff's up there. So there's mm. two official group albums, Backburner Heatwave, Backburner Eclipse, and they're just basically posse cut albums. So inspired by like Souls of Mischief, Wu-Tang Clan, stuff like that. When you want to hear, you know, five or six different rappers rapping on a, on 14 tracks right. and there's interesting combinations and we all get to play off each other. And those are the most fun to make. And yeah, we've got a third album that's hopefully going to be out by the end of 2019 or early 2020. So there'll be a third oh. Backburner Crew album. Is it done? It's, mm, I th- I'd say it's probably about 70% there. Yeah. So we've recorded a lot. There's still a lot of, I think, people that are still just kind of getting together on some tracks. But we do try and do like these summits because we all live in different cities. Uh-huh. So usually in January, we try and get as many people together as possible. And we meet at Timbuktu's studio. And it's sort of like, I'd say Tim's is kind of like the central place where a lot of the the meetings and stuff happens. But like, Uncle Fess has got his studio headquarters in Halifax. And so he does stuff with like Jay Busy and Ghetto Socks and stuff and Ambition out there. And then like Kills has got his studio. And, but yeah, it, it's great to 
be still making music with all the people that I was really sort of coming up with, you know, as I was just sort of coming of age. Right. As a right. And so we have tracks from like 15 years ago together where we're all like, oh man, like this is like, we're kind of embarrassed by it, but we're all there on the tracks. So it was right. like, oh, yo, Choke, remember when you rapped this? Or like, you know, Jesse, and we'll call out, I always call out Jesse. I'm like, yo, Jesse, remember when you said that, man? He's like, oh, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> it's like yearbooks uh, of yeah. our lives. Yeah. So that was a very, uh, rambly disjointed uh <laughs> summation of backburner but it's interesting because i found when i do a collaboration it's twice as fun and it's half as easy most of the time or less because you give each other ideas and you just you don't have to write as many lyrics you write half as many lyrics or if there's six people you write what 17 percent as many lyrics and that's like very fun because you think you really and you also want to like you're competitive so that's why those that first wu-tang record is so great because everyone just kind of you know what i mean you want to yeah, make each other better. And that's cool. Community. Absolutely. It's community. And we all show up on each other's tracks. You know, there's rapper guest appearances by all the crew on all my albums and different, you know, beats and everything. And we all kind of come together. And it is, it's a collection of, yeah, just dope MCs, producers, DJs, and just people who are all, we're all really rooted in a pure love of, of hip hop and like a certain era of hip hop for sure. Like, yeah, that 90s era, early 2000s, like, lyrics and beats and even now right. like you could say like 2019 i've like i could probably name like 20 dope albums that i've heard that like fall into that category of like just really awesome lyrical rap like there's so much great stuff coming on yeah you know like yeah that's it's like it's like a the pentatonic scale and blues that will always be like feel kind of timeless yeah. like great battle raps over great beats is like oh that's that will always sound classic in yeah in 20 years, that will be like, oh, that's that era, but it has a timelessness to it. Yeah. You Shout out I mean? to you, all these amazing <laughs> references you're just pulling from the air, man. It's like, MC Lars, this is, and again, this is an absolute pleasure to be here. Like, thanks, I was like thanks, looking buddy. forward to this. I was like, <laughs> I, all week I was emailing, we're still on, we're still on for this <laughs> yeah. podcast. Let's do it, you know? I've, I've been, I had a great week. I hung, you know, did this show with uh, Schaefer and Dual Core and Michael Kill and, and Lex on, on Saturday, and then we got this show coming up. I know know when this is dropping but you know get to yeah we're with playing you in Philly. front a lot yeah Philly. How did, so so that came together did you, they just hit you up yeah i just got a message online yeah. about it and i was like yo is this really who i think it is and yeah right like, yeah it is i was like okay dope like yeah i could be in philly i've never played philly so oh that's nice. yeah this is yeah it'll be my first time i've been driven through philadelphia before but never done a show there so hopefully uh you know it's gonna i'm sure it's gonna be amazing it's gonna be and, tight yeah philly always yeah you know new york from in my experience when i play here it can be good but it also can be like since there's so much going on you're eclipsed by like hamilton and and uh the rolling stones or whatever's in town and it's like toronto same thing yeah it's yeah. it's it's like philly i feel like they show up for music more i don't know maybe that's just because i don't do you know what i'm saying like yeah, this yeah. toronto feel like that sometimes you're competing with some great stuff yeah it's exactly the same thing as new york any given night you could go see a hundred different concerts or plays or sporting events. There's always something crazy going on. Toronto's such an amazing city. And yeah, we've been doing a, the $5 rap show now. We just had our ninth anniversary. So more or less and I and uh, Doobie Howitzer have been running this show. Wow. And it's like just indie hip hop. It's a really chill night. $5 rap show. Five bucks gets you in. It's more rap than you pay for. And it's just basically to like keep the indie hip hop vibe alive. So a lot of people, touring artists come through and, you know, no one really makes like a ton of money on it, but it's more like getting a chance to play, expose, invite your friends out, sell some merch, meet people and just hone your craft. And I've seen in the nine years we've been doing it, I've seen a lot of, a lot of artists just 
meet and connect and then build together. And like there are like albums and songs that are direct results of uh. things that happen at five dollar rap show so i kind of take like a tiny little bit of you know pride in like saying, oh yo i remember when i introduced these two people and yeah. now they got a record out together and it's like so that's like to me it's like it's been a great way to see the scene grow and and those are the nights that i love to go to when you go when you're on mm. tour and you show up at a place you're like yo this is like our monthly hip-hop show and this is kind of where community is here and people are supporting it and like if there were these shows in every city across the world you know, we'd all have better, you know, the network would be better. Like, at least, like, Canada is very hard to tour because there's so much, it's so sprawling and you have to, you right. know, in many cases, you have to drive, like, 14 hours between shows to, like, over and over. So, I made it my goal to tour the country since last August. And I've been getting across and playing places I've never played before and finding these cool little pockets. Like, oh, yo, I've never heard of any of you. And you're all super dope mm. and you've never heard of me or my crew. So now we're like building these bridges between like people in Vancouver, or Saskatchewan or wherever. And it's, I'm just throwing out Canadian places. How is like, Calgary? Calgary's, Calgary's a cool city. You know, yeah. they, they, uh, they somehow earn the reputation of being uh, uh, Texas North. Right. Cause there's a lot of oil there, I guess. And people like they to, have a big rodeo. They, yeah. A rodeo stampede yeah. there. They love, uh, many things that people in Texas love. So uh, I've been to Texas and Calgary. I've been to both places many times. So I don't, there's a bit of connection there, I guess, but it's different. Yeah. Calgary's great. I had great shows there at the Comic Expo as oh, well, cool. which was dope. Yeah, I did a, did a really fun, fun show uh, in Calgary. Played in Edmonton. Played with Kirby Crackle actually recently. Like this oh, cool. year's been crazy. Like shout out Kirby Crackle. Like, He's awesome. Just, you know how it is. Yeah. Like, you know you're on the road. I'm like, oh man, what show was that? Who was I with? Right, What's right. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever play Nunavut? No. So that one I've been trying to crack yeah. that code. Have What's you the played big, there? No, no. I've I've only played. Let's say I played Toronto, uh, Ottawa, and Montreal. Okay, that's all it. great cities. Yeah, but I've never been that far north. No, I looked into trying to get a show there and I was yeah. like actively pursuing it for a while and I'd still like to get out there if anyone listening there has a listening here has a connection there. Um but I found like it seemed the music venues one was like in a hotel and the other was at right. a pizza place like I don't think there was that many places you could just show up and do a show, you know. So right. I'm sure there are. Yeah. I just could not find anyone there who was able to give me any kind of answers i'm like look if i'm gonna travel all the way over there you know i'd like to be able to do right. something you know yeah is that the last uh province to you haven't played yeah there's some little islands and stuff uh -huh. but uh yeah i guess that would be for this time yeah like the northwest territories i've never never been to yukon haven't been to so yeah, so I'd like to get up around there. Like That's the awesome, north is man. crazy. Yeah, <laughs> to truly be the nerd of the north. <laughs> I wanted to clear something up because a lot of American rappers are always salty about this, and I don't think it's justified. But please, you let's set it straight. People are always like, "Oh, well, Canadian artists get so much support from the government; they're forced to play their music on the radio. They pay for all the videos." Is that true, or is that like a rumor? There, well, depending how you look at it, there's a, there's a thing called CanCon, and CanCon is a certain, and that's just because we're so inundated 
with all this stuff from the UK or from the US and all these different channels. And since there's a smaller population in Canada, it's totally easy to have like to just watch American television or just watch British TV and not ever see any Canadian stuff. So uh, I have heard the history over the years, but CanCon was developed as Canadian content. Okay. It was just developed so that there's a certain percentage of Canadian music or television or films playing at any given time. So, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that results in a whole bunch of Celine Dion and Drake because that or Nickelback or Nickelback. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we could always use more word burglar and, you know, backburner crew. Right. Uh, you know, we'd use more MC Lars on the radio there. Right. So, I mean, I, I always if I'm listening to radio, it's usually college radio. I love college radio uh -huh. to this day. College radio has given me a lot of love over the years. And that's always where I've gotten the most play. Now, we have CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is national. Right. And they do play a ton of Canadian content stuff. And there are grants for sure. And I've received grants in the past for, you know, just to help support. And these grants come from the TV and radio industry wow. and the government. Wow. To help support the creation of, of new art within Canada by Canadians. So and that applies to yeah, not just music, but yeah, film and TV and and just art and writing, literature, right. everything. So there are the government does definitely fund. I've heard also, you know, it's funny, you know, people here will be like, oh, Canada gets to have all these grants. Like, and then I hear these like some European countries and stuff where they're like, no, this is you're fully subsidized or you can do all this. And um, but yeah, there are a lot of grant opportunities. I'm super thankful for them. Like Factor has been amazing. And a lot of the touring that I've done, I would not have been able to have done without Factor, which is uh, this this grant, uh, like you you write grants and apply to, to Factor and they assist Canadian talent on, on radio. And it's the foundation assisting Canadian talent on radio. And they're basically, you know, you work in... You work hard and, and prove that, hey, look, this is his plan I want to do. And there's no possible way that, say, I could tour Canada on my own, mm. you know. But I've got this new album. i got this new project I want to do. And I think I can prove that enough people might be interested. And and then you go. And then as a Canadian artist, you're sort of, you know, when I travel down here, I'm like, I'm saying, yeah, you know, Factor helped me make this happen. And wow. they're like, you know, so it is, there's definitely a bit of a, you know, a Canadian there's there definitely is a Canadian support system, but of course it's always getting cut back by the government and, and, and you have stupid to hustle. politicians. You have to hustle. You have to prove. I mean, this yeah. rhyme your business is my sixth full length album. Wow. Plus, I've got tons of other mixtapes and like group albums and like you I've said been, a Star Wars project. Yeah, right? I just did yeah. a May the Fourth. Yeah, 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 the most Eisley rap show, which uh, is on Bandcamp. Yeah, so like I've got so many projects out there, so yeah. I was able to prove that. Like, l listen, I'm. You know, if you give me a little bit of a, a, you know, give me a little grant, I am going to make the most of it because I'm doing this no matter what. So I think that's where they, it happens. Your your um, discography, probably, they're like, we could give it to this new person who isn't tested or we could give it to Word Burglar who's burgling mad words. Yeah. Right. And, and so they know it's a good investment. Well, uh, yeah. And I hope so. And I hope that I've been using it, you know, as smartly and as conservatively as I possibly can and like yeah. stretching every single cent because it's not, you know, it's not a ton of money, but it's like every little bit helps. Right. So you right. know, when you're on tour, you need gas money. You have to pay for hotels. Like sometimes you get stiffed by a promoter. Right. Sometimes like all this stuff can happen. And sometimes you like your car breaks down and you're, you know, <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? It's so, such a gamble taking yeah. this from our bedroom to the bars of the world and clubs. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
that's interesting, man. And I think also there are grants in the U.S. that you know people can apply for. And I don't, I, I do like though how it's this Canadian idea that they don't want the hegemonic like influence of all this other bigger cultural empires squishing their artists. I think that's cool. And there's yeah. been so many Canadian exports that are very, I don't know, amazing comedy and music and everything. We've got great culture there. I mean, yeah. as, as do you guys. And yeah, Canadian art is fantastic. And I've never, I mean, I love the U.S., but I've never really considered moving here. I've always thought, mm -hmm. you know, I have so many friends here and I have family here. But I've always just, I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to stay in Canada. So I think having the grant system there also helps keep artists in Canada because, and a lot of times what you see happen, some people go to the States and go to Hollywood or something and make it big and then... They come back to Canada and they're like, it's a different, you know, there's a, then they get more recognition and stuff, right? So, right, right. You know, there's tons of people, Seth Rogen or something, you think like, yeah, Tom Green, Celine Dion, I mean, Celine Dion, whatever. You know, she's just, her voice is just like, it's butter from the gods. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that celebration, like the celebration, we're proud, we're proud to have you home, right? And yeah. Like, yeah. I read Tom Green's book, like, it's called Hollywood Gives You Cancer. And oh, I haven't read it. It's about, and it's a lot about why he decides to. It's about his Canadian pride, mm. and and it's it's a good read. I liked it a lot, but yeah. um, I love Canada, and yeah. I, I would move there if I for could. sure. Yeah, <laughs> we got you know what? It's a it's a great country. I got I love I love Canada, and I'm happy to have been born there. You know, I always think yeah. how lucky we are. I mean, being born, you know, even just being born in North America, it's uh, just such a yeah. compared to the rest of the world or where else. You know, it's just some luck of fate in the universe to be born you know here yeah and, uh you know that's why i was like you know back to that drake song you mentioned started from the bottom i'm like dude you started at the top you know we're in the north it's like you know quite literally <laughs> it's like canada's yeah. pretty good you know yeah when you look at the rest of the world the great white north yeah that classic <laughs> rush yeah. rush song um okay so you got all see. the references dude this is amazing i wanted to ask you i wanted to ask you about one of your lines, which I like a lot. And okay. I think this is like a, this is a good way to um, wrap up. You have a great line. You say, there's always free cheese in the mousetrap, yeah. right? I love that lyric because it's made me think like, oh, that's like anything with addiction, with a bad relationship, with distraction. There's always something enticing that can end up destroying us. Mm -hmm. And so in the music industry, how have you not let this free cheese like turn you off to hip hop because you're one of the people who I know who always seems so positive and excited about rap and the culture. So how do you not let the free cheese crush you? I guess by just keeping a steady diet in my ears of, of great music and great independent music and seeing what other people are doing and yeah, not being tempted by all that, the, the BS that you, you know, the labels will promise you stuff. And I've, you know, I've had meetings with labels and, you know, I remember definitely like in the mid 2000s, they were just like, you should be doing more like Eminem kind of stuff. I was like, well, I was doing my own thing, you know, before obviously Eminem not is incredible, not going to take away from that. But yeah. it's like, that's not me also. Like, that's not going to be what I'm doing. And they're like, you know, and I've never really gotten into that battle scene as much as I always love battle and punchline rap and stuff like right, that. Right. And I did battle when I was like in high school. And it was, I guess to me, it's just like, I've never, you know, the free cheese of like a music label say hey we're gonna give you all this money blah 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 blah. but then you go on tour and if you don't make that money back you've gotta you're indebted to the label 
I've talked to artists who've had who've done incredible albums that have never been released because the label's like, no, you know what? We're shelving this. We're not going to put this out. We've all heard that story, right? Right. I mean, Master Ace just released like a Lost Tapes type album. I think it was it was called like Off the Shelf or something or something shelf. And it was all these. It was this album that just never came out. And I don't know the full story behind that, but I imagine if his you know whatever happened to his label. They just shelved all these great songs and then you can't release it because that's stuck to the label. I can't imagine making a song and being told, first of all, how I should make it mm-hmm. or, you know, how I should release or when I can release it or when I can't. And yeah, having the help <laughs> would be great. You know, I'm currently trying to find a manager. I'm trying to find a good booking agent. So if anyone listening knows people like I'm that w- that's kind of what I need at this point in my life, someone to help me book shows and expand and get out and, and and figure out what I'm doing wrong in terms of like getting music out to people, but like signing a label deal. Um, yeah, it just hasn't enticed me because I see the opposite end. Also listening to underground rap in the nineties, half these people were just like from the Jizza to like company flow and all these groups. They were always talking about like how terrible labels were. So I'm right, like, why right. do I want to be on a label? You know, Chuck, do you saying all this stuff? If you can't trust all this? Like, I'm like, yeah, what? Right. Like, I don't want to do that. And then, uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to have to make whack stuff to, you know, sell a record. So, and we have the tools that those, people did it the internet True. and the crowdfunding and yeah so that line is so specifically that's like a, a music industry warning that lyric yeah i yeah. think so yeah absolutely yeah interesting it's like yeah there's you know you're gonna get enticed it's like oh yeah i can do this I'll, whatever and like i know we can think of a million examples and then i see people doing it like in canada i'm like you're just trying to emulate some american artist right but you go down to the states and you're gonna be up against a thousand people are doing the exact same thing you're doing. Right. So why aren't you just trying to do something a little more true to who you are? And, and I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know. What, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you, but you know, you I were, just love, yeah. I love being able to rap. I've always loved rapping. I yeah. love rap music and I'm like, I'm still doing it and it's just, I don't ever plan to stop. So do you feel like you'll, so you'll keep doing it into your, in your late 30s and 40s and 50s oh yeah absolutely that's yeah awesome. i'm trying to be like a hundred year old rapper that's <laughs> that's the game plan right that's now. it 150 yeah. year old rapper let's really raise that bar <laughs> you're talking about you doing a uh an upcoming project which is like rare stuff and some remixes mm-hmm. let's talk about that oh yeah uh we're gonna a new project uh it's called space verse and it just sort of it dawned on me that I had all these different science fiction tracks that had kind of been floating around of songs I'd done with other, you know, groups and then just sort of my own stuff that I hadn't found places to release yet. Like with Rhyme Your Business, I had been working on a bunch of songs that didn't make the album and then they were really good, but they were just like, well, I've already got like 15 tracks on here. I don't want to make this too, too big. And uh, yeah, so this new project was just like, whoa, all these songs kind of fit together. So I've been trying to work on this way to, to get them all out. So I'm hoping by the end of the summer, I can release this new project, which is, yeah, just a, some remixes and some new stuff and some unreleased stuff, but it's all with on a science fiction tip. So I, cool. I did just put out that Star Wars inspired EP with the Hoojib song and most Eisley rap show. Would those be on there or not? Uh, I think, yeah, I'm going to try and include okay, those. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, I, cause they're space themed. Yeah. yeah so, right. and also a lot of people have asked, can they get a physical copy of that? Sure. So I'm looking into actually putting it out on, on full vinyl, like do full size vinyl for it. And uh, yeah, I've got that new seven inch that, uh, thank you for this. Here. Yeah. This yeah, yeah. So it's the damage control with esoteric and then the space defense team 
Bix remix on the other side. Yeah, it's pretty cool with art. Mega ran and cool keys. So shout out everybody. Yeah, the art by Eric Kim on the space side and Dave Howlett on the comic book side, and that's from Black Buffalo Records. And they're they're a Canadian, uh, pretty much vinyl only label mm. that have just been doing putting out amazing releases from a lot of great Canadian artists. So definitely check out Black Buffalo Records. Are these can keep can people get these from your merch store? They're, I know they're very limited. Uh you can get them off the Black Buffalo Rec. Uh, records okay, website cool. so i have a few of these that i have at, at shows to right. sell but i'm not directly selling them online so direct so, people there yeah yeah cool. so for me you can go to wordburglar.com and there's links to albums i'm at uh, propsdepartment.bandcamp.com has all my digital releases and yeah i'm on i'm on all those streaming services wh- however you like to listen to music just type in word burglar i'm the only one in the phone book is it just word burglar on twitter yeah, on cool. Twitter it's Word Burglar. On Instagram, I'm the Word Burglar because somebody got to Word Burglar before I. Did. Oh man, someone yeah. so, I'm MC underscore Lars. Someone got MC Lars and they don't post, and they have like twelve followers. Yeah. They were just like a week before me. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I don't think crazy. I had the phone. I was like, I don't think I had a phone that could take good pictures at the time. So I was like, I don't need Instagram. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm late, man. I'm the luddite. I don't know. Rhyme your business is your newest full length that came out last year. Yeah, it came out basically at the end of last summer. And okay. I'm, that's what I've been touring all year. Rhyme your business, please go give it a listen. There's a whole variety of tracks on there, from comics to video games to rental stores to food to just crazy rhymes and wordplay and fun stuff we like friends of ours are, are on it uh there's a new track with mega ran on it and uh, all the backburner crew swamp thing and uh and there is actually a gi joe song on it <laughs> if people were like i'm not in gi joe i'm not checking word burglar don't worry i got mad songs that have nothing to do with gi joe so that has the rental patient song we yeah rental about. patients okay, on there cool. so yeah we got a video for that working on a video now for mike heckler which will be like the second single. So I'm going to keep, I find like, and you probably, I don't know if you feel the same way. Like, I feel like an album doesn't even, like the way we release them, I feel like an album almost takes a year to breathe Mm. and it doesn't really catch on until like the second year. Like that's at least been my experience. Like with Burglaritis, it dropped in 2006, but people didn't really start hearing it or getting in touch with me. I didn't feel any of the, benefits of that record till like late 2007 you know 2008 is when it started hitting and that's when i was able to do videos third burglar same way replicable skills like people are kind of just have been coming on to in the last year and that album's from 2015 so with rhyme your business i'm like well i'm i think it's my best work yet and i feel like it's it's got a lot of time to grow like i don't want to abandon it you know just because i put it out like that's what another problem with labels They'll abandon something. They abandon something, right? right? You get, you know, they'll push you for a month and then that's it. And it's like, what? Like this album needs to find people. Like there's still millions of people that I haven't know. heard it. And the cool thing, you could do a video for a, a song from two albums ago. Yeah. Because fans suddenly discover it. I just did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bill Mosienko. Yeah. That's tight. Yeah. And the other cool thing, I think that's the product of like the Spotify algorithms they'll put a song that people are listening to in a recommended playlist, like if I follow you, and then that kind of takes on a life of its own. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's great. And I, I find new people that way. I mean, uh, it's just, it's a, it's amazing. And yeah, there's there some guy who mentioned, he was like, yeah, I heard you through MC Lars. I'm like, that's, well, thank you. I'm, that's an honor. And, and hopefully tight. vice versa. I hope someone can hear you from me, you know, when I said, you know, I'm like, yo, I was on the MC Lars <laughs> podcast and, 
People be like, who's MC Lars? I'm like, what? How do you not know MC? You, you know me. Right. I haven't heard MC Lars. So, yeah. We're always yeah. in each other's, I feel like, top recommended Spotify artists. People Fantastic. who like me, like you, I find that like you're in, always up in the top ones. And that's Sweet. Like, what We did like the middle class, the middle earth. Oh, yeah. That's a recent one. Yeah. We yeah. should talk about that. With that, Jason Anarchy. Yeah. That just kind of came up and he mentioned to me and he was like, MC Lars is going to be on. I'm like, that's dope. And then, yeah, yeah we rapped about, uh, about being from middle earth. Tolkien, yeah, I play Sweaty Baggins, the the Hobbit who just wants to smoke some pipe weed and, and chill, dig for truffles. Yeah, so Jason yeah. Anarchy does a, he does Drinking Quest, which is a really popular uh, tabletop game. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of great, uh, really fun games. And I think this was he like he dabbles in music and wanted to release right. uh, a vinyl. Like I don't know that it, it it ties into a particular game. Okay, um, but the yeah the seven inch vinyl is dope and yeah. that's available on his website for Jason Anarchy. And but yeah no we have to do a track that's like we'll, you know we'll talk about this yeah. you know, off air. But yeah I was thinking that all the way I was like we got to do an actual like at least one that's like you know we're us, both like, focused hard we're both focus hard and we're yeah. like this is the one that works because yeah I think we're always kind of appearing on a bunch of different tracks right. together that we're not really like the the puppet master of and right. it's like this and that and like like that reading rainbow track oh, from ben. a million years ago which yeah I didn't even I remember like I don't think I'd even heard some of the other stuff that was going on and that was like a long time ago, but there's been, I think there was a remix that you may put out or something. Or Oh, there was a remix of that on my second 22 concerts, which was like a bonus disc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dope. So that's, that's gotten out to people, right? But it's also like, oh man, like, you know, that was one, that was a, that was a long time ago. So we got to make some new stuff. So it's only those two, I guess, that we know Is of. Is that it? I'm sure there might be some People like will be nerdy, tweeting at us. Hey, yeah, there's like some nerdy posse cuts out there that we're both on. Uh, I learned a lot about GI Joe today. I learned a lot about <laughs> your history and your method, and I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. And this is a great thing you're doing. This podcast is dope as hell. So thanks. Keep, keep doing it. Keep sharing all these awesome stories. Thank you, bro. And I yeah. um want to make sure that everyone listening checks out your new stuff and sh- looks for the new space concept album and um. Follows the word burglar as he keeps killing it. Au revoir, mes amis. Adios. Freeze, don't move, stay where you are. Put down that remote, let me be your Levar. Let's celebrate who you are. Read a little babar. The elephant in the room is today's kids are starved. They need imagination, it's not very hard. You can meet the man in the moon with just a library card. So read. Grows. Frog and toad still play and the wind still blows. In the willows lives a world that's free from batteries. Take a look, it's in a book. Imagination is the key. And we can speak clearly, like Beverly Cleary. And Ralph S. Mouse loves human friends so dearly. Henry Huggins and Risby have a paper route. Growing up is so confusing, but Ramona works it out. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, menstruating in the bathroom. Adolescent target. Then again, maybe I will lock my bathroom door. Blue marker on the face. It's the freckle juice cure. Marty Preston has a friend, and his name is Shiloh. In West Virginia, where the lilacs lie low. And when the stinky cheese man is on the run, I never knew PBS. This could be so much fun. Read. Read a book. Reading Rainbow. Word burglar. Read 
some books to help you know stuff. Check, I can't lie. Most of my favorite books have pictures in them. Action, adventure, ridiculous. We're all fixtures in them. Fix the system, invisibles, matrix, outwards. Literature insured, I can spout words. The music before I knew it, C.S. Lewis. Let me move with anything with no BS to it. Rue it, kids from Narnia to Slaughterhouse 5. Who's your own invention? Never thought about why. Life of Pyrin, forever in piles and dirt. Graduated Maurice to Alan Moore. Excalibur, caliber, Cavalier and Clay. J.D. Salinger, rabbit ears at bay. So stay between the pages. Kids, I'm telling you, books is major. Y'all, pocketbook, paperback. I'm my favorite snack. It's X. Flip it to see what comes next. Read. Read a book. Zephyr and the sails won't fly, so I'm stuck forever in a land far away. Yeah, I'll have to stay. I should have known it's gonna be a no good, very bad day. I should have moved to Australia, chill with kangaroos, worn a purple coat with my bright white shoes. Imagination's endless, but pasta's not. That is, unless you happen to possess a pasta pot, this magic. So I throw a batch and it starts to grow. But I should have listened when Stregonona said no. Sometimes I guess I have to learn my lessons on my own. Turns out there's no Gila monsters at my new home. Turns out there's nice monsters underneath my bed. And I don't fear being where the wild things tread. I'm starting to understand how it's just a purple crayon. I can draw an adventure. With only my hand, I can dig up dinosaurs and assemble the bones Find a button to spare and give them a home And travel so far without leaving my chair Picking blueberries with sail, look out, a bear I'll keep on reading, I'm never gonna stop Like a pre-Jimmy Neutron Bob phone stretching soda pop till it's endless Create a little mischief like Calvin and Dennis My day got worse, now I'm at the dentist But Mrs. Piggle wiggling in her house upside down And solving a case with Encyclopedia Brown And a chance of rain from a meatball cloud To turn my frown upside down and my day around Now I'm prepared for anything, whatever I do If it rains carrots or there's a phantom toll booth that appears Just to test me or a pirate with the hook on me hook. It's fun. Come take a look in a book. Read. Let's have an adventure. Go buy a book. Check your library. Or one. Uh, or lend one. I like them. Words, I mean. That's why I burgle them. books thank you word burglar that was awesome next week we have the legendary weird paul whose new album is coming out the week after next and uh, weird paul is very inspiring very amazing guy i talked to him when i was in pittsburgh and it's a great conversation so be sure to check that out thank you all for listening please like and share leave a review and uh, have a, i hope you're all having a great summer have a great week i'll see you next monday thanks y'all peace